You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, this is where the road ends for our Hebrew series. 21 weeks, I believe it's been, and a really wonderful journey through God's Word in the book of Hebrews to these troubled people, this early church struggling to maintain their courageous faith in the midst of a lot of persecution, in a lot of struggle, in a lot of doubt and confusion for what it means to walk with Jesus in times that are really difficult. And not much unlike uh, times we find ourselves today, in times of confusion and a lot of temptation and even opposition in a culture that increasingly um, is skeptical of God's word and increasingly opposed to it. So we're going to finish up in chapter 13, reading the first 19 verses of chapter 13. Let's prepare ourselves to hear God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. This is God's word. Well, we finish up our time in Hebrews and it comes to a, an appropriate close. If you've been with us for any amount of time at our church, you have heard certain words and phrases, things like grace, forgiveness, rescue, gospel, any combination of those words. We believe the gospel is at the heart of God's Story. The gospel message is about God's plan of redemption for sinners. It all hinges on the, the 
righteous life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian, to know God, to be a part of his family, and by what means does that happen, we recall the words in Ephesians chapter 2, which say this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God saves us by grace. It is a gift from God. We contribute nothing of value that gives us access to God. And this has been the overarching story and theme of all of Hebrews. You have the Hebrew people for millennia have been a part of the sacrificial system of drawing near to God through ritual, approaching God through by means of the high priest, by offering a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, but all the while God was still at a distance There wasn't this immediate proximity and relationship to God. He was there in the temple, but then there were two curtains separating the people from God. And we learn about all these ways of illustrations and all of these rituals to show us that getting to God and getting close to God was a very difficult thing and not many would be able to do it. And now we talk about grace. Now we talk about how that way has been open, the access has been open, The immediate relationship with God has been made available through Jesus, that he is the better sacrifice. He is the better high priest. He is the better lamb of God. He is the better worship. He is better than all of that. And those old sacrifices, they're no longer pleasing to God. All those rituals, they're no longer pleasing to God for for Christ has come to do away with them. This would be shocking to their ears. These people for a millennia who have been conditioned and trained to approach God by certain means. And now the writer is saying, those are no longer pleasing sacrifices. And you can imagine them thinking, what are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do? We trust in Jesus, but what does that mean for our day-to-day, for our daily life? We still want to do. We want to work. We want to approach God in a certain way that is pleasing to him? How do we know that we're living a life pleasing to him? And those are very good questions. Because often when we talk about grace a lot and talk about the gift of God so much and talk in language like we contribute nothing to our access to God, it can tempt us to think that we can live any way we want. But the writer of Hebrews says, there are sacrifices that we make to God. They're not like the ones of old. They're new sacrifices that we make. It is a life of sacrificial love for God and others. What does it look like? Now, we don't do this for our salvation, but we live in such a way we put forth effort, we put forth energy, we put forth action, time, and resources, not for our access to God, but in a way that truly matters as an act of praise to God. And he just lists them off. That's what he does in chapter 13. You think, he's talking about so many things. Is there any theme to this? Yeah, he says, you want to offer a life of sacrifice to God? Here is how you should live. Be hospitable to strangers. Show concern for those who are hurting. Honor God's design for sexuality and marriage. Be generous with your money. Respect human authorities in your life. Be thankful for all things. Those sacrifices will be pleasing to God. And we may be thinking, is there like, like a canned food drive or something that I can do instead. These are hard. Can I I just give something, give a sacrifice? 
And he says, those sacrifices are no longer pleasing to God, for Jesus has come and given you access and rescued you and paid for your sins and, and, and taken your guilt to the cross. But there is still something that we do, not for our salvation, but for our life to honor God and to bless others. And these are sacrifices, right? These are Sacrifices were always that way. The, the animal doesn't come back from a sacrifice. You know, even breakfast, you're having eggs and bacon. You know, did the chicken or the pig give more, right? And so it's like you, a life of sacrifice is I, I give everything. I give my life as a life of surrender to God. And that's why this list of things will seem very radical, very intrusive. Even makes us uncomfortable as we read them and even list them off. That's the thing about sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross does not take away our calling to live a life of surrender. His sacrifice does not take away our call to live a life of obedience and effort. It does take away our need to offer our life for our sin, for another life has been given in our place. But now we offer a life in obedience and praise to God as his dearly beloved children. How are we to live as grace, gospel-centered people who know that we are loved not by what we do, but we are loved because of the grace and mercy of God? How are we then to live? This isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a big list that covers quite a bit. And our series ends appropriately by talking about how to do that. Our passage lists these six things, and before you gasp, let me explain. We'll go through all these six things. <laughs> I said, don't gasp. We'll go through pretty quickly. So let's get started. Treat strangers like friends. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, there's an important clarity in this command. It's great to be hospitable, to open up our home. Many of you I know are very gifted and good at that. You love creating community. You're a connector. You're a bringer. You love having people in your home and making people feel loved. But we're usually good at that with people we enjoy being around. We usually open up our home to those with whom we already are close. And this says, now take that same generosity and same hospitality, and show it towards those from whom you have nothing to gain in return. They didn't have hotels like we do now, right? That's the, now they call it the hospitality industry of welcoming people and making them feel comfortable, making them feel at home. They'd go to great lengths to do that. Hotels are the hospitality business, but in ancient, ancient times, they had you know, the hotels, they were inns, right? They were these small inns. They were known to be miserable places for people to stay. The innkeepers were known to like even keep their guests hostage and abuse them. And it was even more hostile for Christians if they found out that you were a Christian in the first century to stay at an inn. And so Christians who were traveling had to rely on the hospitality of other Christians for meaningful conversation and companionship and also a roof over their head and a nourishing meal in their journey as they were journeying from one place to another. And so Christians relied on the generosity of others for a meal. We don't have that same need now, right? Many of us are not traveling from place to place uh, and depending on the generosity of others uh, for our sustenance. We book a hotel, we book an Airbnb, 
We hit uh, a fast food place. We go, we go someplace, right? So the word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. I think you know that, right? The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Philo meaning love, Delphos meaning brother. The word for hospitality is philoxenia. Philo meaning love, xena meaning the stranger. And that was, have you heard of that word xenophobe? Yeah? Like for the first time, like three years ago? Yeah, I had to like look it up. I was like, we're hearing this so much, right? This is a word that has, be, that has been recently, within the last five years, dominating uh, as a word to describe people who do not treat people different from them with respect and dignity. And so it's people who treat others in a prejudiced way, anyone that is just different from them. And so philoxenia is to take that same hospitality that you show to those you love and show it to the ones who are different from you. The, the direct, like there isn't maybe this direct application of bring in the stranger who's journeying on their way and offer them a meal and a good conversation and a warm bed. Maybe an opportunity for that for some of us. But for most of us, how do we treat the strangers in our life that are different from us? You have people who might not show up at your doorstep and say, I need a meal and a bed to stay and a shower to clean myself. But you have uh, people you interact with every single day, multiple times a day, who are different from you. Treat them like you would treat a friend. And this is a compelling witness to the world that we belong to God. And this is the kind of sacrifice that God says he delights in. God, what can I do for you? What can I do for you that gives you honor? How can I live for you that gives you praise? See that person who, who's different from you, has different viewpoints from you, different lifestyle, different habits? Treat them like you love them. Treat them like you would a friend. Isn't there a food drive I can give to? And the author offers a very enticing possibility that in doing that, we might be befriending angels. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, I don't think this was like, Willy Wonka's put five golden tickets out there, right? It might just, you might get the one. I, I wonder about this. What does that mean? Is there like, is this like a competition? Hey, I put some angels out there. They might show up. But I think it shows this. I think it shows how much God prizes his people treating strangers like friends because that's exactly what he is like. Right? Doesn't he treat us like friends who are not just strangers, who are not just other than him, but have often been called enemies apart from his grace? There's people in your life that are so different than you. For better or for worse. There's people that in your life that you just despise. There's people in your life that you just do not like being around. There's people in your life you don't want in your home. There's neighbors that you close the garage door before you get out of your car. Yes. There's people that you just, they're the, they're the problem with the world. Those people. You know who they are. Treat them like friends. That's a, that's a mark of, of the life of Christ living in us. It's a mark of, of one who knows the assurance that they have in the love of God that has been given by grace. 
Because we were once a stranger. We were once a foreigner. We were once a sojourner. We were once on a journey with no sustenance, no help. We were, in fact, dead in our sin. And God looked upon us and gave us mercy. He says, now I treat you. He tells his disciples the night before he was crucified. He said, I no longer treat you like strangers. I no longer treat you like slaves. I treat you like friends because I've given you the word of truth. So that's how we are to act towards others. This is a sacrifice that God is pleased by. Let's move on to the next expression. See, we're going a little quicker than you thought I would, hopefully. Practice genuine empathy. Genuine empathy. Empathy is, is what is being commanded here, right? It's the ability to express a, a felt concern for another person in the midst of struggles and, when possible, to help them in a time of need practically when we can. If someone says, I'm really anxious about my doctor's appointment tomorrow, saying, you know, maybe this can just be a wake-up call to take better care of yourself. That's not empathy. It may be true. It may be true, but it's not empathetic. An empathetic response would be, it sounds really scary. Sounds like this is making you really anxious. How are you processing all that? I was recently reading about three different kinds of empathy. Three kinds of empathy, I think, are, are helpful to categorize, right? Because they don't all look the same. There's emotional empathy. And this is kind of like mirroring the emotions of another person. Someone comes and they feel sadness. They feel f- anger. It is understanding that emotion, being able to understand it in our own emotions, what that emotion is that they're expressing, and then mirror that back to them. So if someone's expressing sadness, we're not like, just come on, be happy. If someone is anger, we don't try to justify it away. It is being able to be there, present with that person, and emotionally feel what they are feeling out of concern and love for them. That's, a, that's emotional empathy. Then there's cognitive energy, empathy. Cognitive energy is being able to think like they are thinking. This is the one where we say, put yourself in their shoes, right? To, uh, to, know, to think what it would be like to live out that struggle. Imagine you're in prison with this prisoner. That's what this is saying. Remember them. Put yourself in their shoes. Remember that if they are being mistreated, put yourself in their shoes. Why? Because we are in their shoes in a spiritual sense, for we as the body of Christ are connected. And so if one part of the body is hurting, we're all hurting. And so we don't have to just think about it and try to like make believe that we're somehow connected. God actually tells us that we are connected through his spirit as his body. And you know what that feels like when one part of your body hurts, you hurt all over. So to have cognitive empathy is to think of others who are struggling and then put effort into imagining what it would be like to suffer just as they do. I've been in conversations like this before with people and, I, and, I, and someone has gotten into trouble and they are suffering. And I said, imagine what, imagine what they're going through right now. And I sometimes get the response, well, I would never do what that person did to get in the place that they are. That's not empathy. That's not compassion. That is not understanding. That's self-righteousness. 
And so cognitive empathy is, is imagining what it's like to be a person who suffers. We don't have to suffer in every way like everybody else. We often won't. We'll have different kinds of experiences, but it is remembering our own experiences, how we have suffered, and then trying to understand how they're suffering now. And then the last one is compassion. This is kind of the fullest sense of empathy where we don't just feel and think in their shoes, but we actually express acts of practical kindness to alleviate their struggle. What's in mind in our passage is a combination of all three, as you can imagine. We are to imagine ourselves with their hurting, both cognitively, emotionally, if possible to visit them. We are even meant to take action as, as if it were ourselves in that situation. What would we want if we were in that situation? We would want friendship, we would want help, we'd want support, we would want generosity and kindness, we would want all of those things. Because spiritually, we are in their shoes. We're part of the body that's hurting. And we hurt all over. When others are weak, we are weak as well. When others are strong, we rejoice with them because we are all strong. Empathy doesn't come naturally to most of us. You know who you are. <laughs> it's something that needs to be exercised. It's something that needs to be disciplined. And, and that's why he says, remember. It's not just bring up in your mind, remember that there's people struggling. It doesn't come naturally. We are encouraged to take action emotionally, cognitively, compassionately when able. Where do you currently score on the empathy score? Just as a quick diagnostic. You don't have to give me any numbers. How are you doing with empathy? Empathy is a, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a way that we manifest the communicable attributes of God. We are told often, and even in Hebrews, that Jesus empathizes with us. He knows. That's why he became a man. He, came, he became a human to know what it's like to endure a life of suffering and betrayal and rejection and pain. He knows what it's like to bear the burden and guilt of sin, not his own sin, but ours that he took on the cross. He knows what it's like to be punished, for he was, took the full weight of the punishment of our sin from God. And so the Bible tells us that he did this so that he would be able to sympathize, to empathize, to express compassion, to know, to feel. And he was the, actually the only one who was able to do anything about it. Practice genuine, practicing genuine empathy to those who are struggling, it is a sacrificial act of love and obedience to God. This is a sacrifice that God loves for his people to give. Next, honor God's design for marriage and sexuality. Simply put, our view of sexuality and marriage and practice within marriage will display how profoundly we love one another. Here the command is to honor marriage and the marriage bed, which as we understand, we know that, right? It's a euphemism for sexual morality. And both marriage and the marriage bed are to be held in honor among all. And he's speaking uh, of two ways that, that marriage and the marriage bed can be dishonored happening here at the time, and it still happens today. One way is to dishonor marriage and the marriage bed through a, set, a view of sex that is it's dirty, it's defiled, it's dangerous, uh, and that even marriage is a hindrance 
to becoming an empowered and full picture of ourself, to be a full, actualized person. Marriage is a hindrance to that. Another view, a way of dishonoring marriage in the marriage bed is through a view that sex is just an appetite we all have, can be pursued by any two consenting people, no matter who you are. There's no reason that those desires should ever be rejected or denied. But God presents a third way, a way of honoring marriage and marriage bed. And it's for this reason it's concluded in this list of commands in chapter 13, which is about ways that we express our genuine love for one another. At first glance, it's strange to see this list of commands and then you see something about marriage and sexuality. Marriage in the marriage bed is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to give your entire self to another person. It fits in a discussion about how we love each other well. Tim Keller says in the book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, it is God's created way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And so the marriage and the marriage bed is to be held in highest honor among two groups of people. For the married, being faithful within marriage. For the unmarried, by honoring God's created design for the union between a man and a woman and not giving yourself physically to anyone until you are able to give yourself completely in every aspect to another person through the covenant of marriage. And it's these two groups of people who are held accountable to how they honor or dishonor marriage and the marriage bed because marriage and sexual ethic is a way of expressing love to another person. This is a hard sacrifice, especially in today's culture. Most people have a story of trauma, embarrassment, pain, confusion, regarding sexual morality, regarding marriage. And we live in a society that says, like, it is an appetite that should be indulged. In fact, that's a healthy thing for us to do. Love is love. Well, here the author says, no, actually, love is, is something explicit that God has designed and created for his honor, his glory, and our ultimate joy. And, until, and it's meant for the complete union of a person in a relationship that is more transformational than any human relationship we will ever have. And that's why it's included in this talk about how to express love for one another. Fourth way to show love to one another, guard against greed. Yeah, we're talking about it all today. <laughs> I'm getting in your marriage bed, your wallet, I'm getting in it all. <laughs> Our passage says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It's basically saying this, we must be careful of what treasures we hold dear because that treasure will end up ruling our life. 
So be careful what you treasure. Our habits and emotions surrounding money will ultimately show the true condition of our heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's something I think Christians especially might need to hear. Jesus is not against money. Jesus is not against material gain. Jesus is not against enjoying the fruit of your labor. The author is not asking us to choose between Jesus and enjoyment of material things. That's something we can be clear on. He is asking, however, for us to choose between two treasures that drive our lives. And he says you cannot have a healthy relationship with God when you have a really unhealthy relationship with money and the pursuit of material things. And he elaborates further on this point in our wrestling with that allure of money, we're to consider the faithfulness of God and also the emptiness of the pursuit of material things. Money will not last, but God will last. God is forever. He will never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Money will not satisfy you. God will satisfy you completely, fully. Money acts really powerful. It has a great pull on our heart. It really tugs on those strings on our heart that compel us to do things, to act in a certain way, but it never delivers on its promises. God is faithful and always does what he says he will do. The Lord is our helper, we're told. The point is it really to consider what drives you. When you read a, a verse like this, I think the theological point is for us to consider what's driving my life, what's motivating me, what desires are compelling, most compelling in my life. And the author wants us to think about something that might lead to, an, to a really uncomfortable realization for a lot of us, and that's, the, and that's this. It's possible that there exists in your life a huge gap between what you confess true about God and how you really live. God, you are my helper. I trust in you. I am content with you, but I really need all these things. God, you have my life, and I surrender everything to you, and I want to be generous like you, but I'm going to clinch tightly to all these things because I don't know what's around the corner. God, my life is in your hands, and I don't need to be afraid, but just in case, I got this stockpile ready to go. It could feel like we've got a foot in God's door and a foot in the world's door in this way. And this is not to make us feel ultimately condemned and insecure. It's, to, it's for us to assess our heart, for God, allow God's word to convict us of sin, to repent of sin, to enjoy God and to enjoy his blessings. It's important for us to do. It's not, mon- it's not bad to have money in your life. It's not bad to have expensive wardrobes. It's not bad to have large or beautiful homes. These are destructive when they become the things that drive our passions, that drive our attitudes, that drive our contentment. And that's what we really need to contend with. That's where we need to take a good look. Paul Tripp says a desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And that's what we want to assess, evaluate. That's where we want to be aware of what in our life is becoming a ruling thing, a driving thing in our life. And that's why we ought to shift our contentment away from what money can provide to what God has promised to provide. 
Next, and my personal favorite, is honor your pastor. <laughs> no, honestly, this is like grueling for me to talk about. Can actually someone else come up, one of our elders come up and talk about this? All right, here goes. I'm going to put it under the heading this. Respect the human authorities in your life. If we look throughout Scripture, we, God tells us what he loves. He tells us what he loves often. And whenever there's something explicit in Scripture about what God loves, those are the things we should really pay attention to and say, okay, I know you love this, and I want to honor you by doing this. There's no question about it. God loves and puts a great deal into honoring authorities in your life. Human authorities, imperfect authorities, flawed, sinful people, men and women. We are to consider the example of our leaders. We are to consider the way that they point us to God, not only through their words, but also uh, in their actions, the way that they proclaim the good news, the way that they encourage our hearts, the way they protect and care for us in our needs, the way that they shepherd us in our spiritual well-being, we're to pray for our leaders. I know I personally covet your prayers. It is no small thing when I hear that you're praying for me. It encourages me so, so deeply. And we are to learn and to be led in such a way that doesn't make it hard for them. I'll say it for, louder for the people in the back. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. Actually, this passage is written for a different church because it's not written for our church. Because... Every moment has been uh, a joy to be your pastor. No one laughed at that. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> what does this mean for you? What does it mean for us? There's an exhortation here for you, and there's an exhortation here for me, for our elders, for those who lead in ministry, for those who speak the word of God to you in a life group or another context. As you are exercising your faith in submission to your leadership, to leadership in the church, I exercise, and the other leaders in the church, exercise our faith in God by faithfully shepherding you. And we have callings that God has put in our heart, he, life. He has called many of us to be led. He has called some of us to lead, but he has called all of us to be faithful to him. And we are called to lead with, and some are called to follow with a clear conscience out of an act of love and faithfulness to God. Are we, are we following in a submissive, not a, that's not a dirty word, right? In a God-honoring deference to the leaders that God has put into our life, acknowledging that God has placed leaders and authorities in our life as an act of his authority and kindness over our own life, even as flawed as they are. And this is an exhortation to the leaders of the church who have been entrusted with the care of God's sheep. And both of these callings are incredibly weighty and incredibly, incredible privilege, an incredible blessing and joy. And we can make it easier for each other. As we think about the impact that our thoughts and comments and, 
attitudes and actions have on one another. You should be thinking, God, you have placed leaders in my life as an expression of your kindness and love for me. How am I loving you as I follow them? I should be thinking, and the elders and other leaders in the church should be thinking, God, you have placed people in our life to shepherd and care for and love and pray for. How am I, how are we loving you well by expressing our love and leadership of them? And I love, where the, I love how the author quickly moves on with the comment in verse 8. Right? He's talking about love your, you know, pray for your leaders, submit to your leaders, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Saved by the bell on that one. Right? It's like follow your leaders, look at, look at their life, imp, imitate them, do as they do, say as they say, and then it goes quickly to Jesus. Why? And I think that as you think of your pastor, this is what it means. As you think of your pastor, don't think too long about him. Think quickly about Jesus. I will fail you. I and the elders will let you down in our service to you. Your pastor is not Jesus and was never meant to be. Jesus is Jesus, though. And I think that's why he goes quickly on to this. He says there, there is a calling, there is a responsibility that we all have and that we should not take lightly and we should be faithful in it. But Jesus is the one that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he doesn't change. And so as you think of your pastor, as you think of your leaders, don't think too much of, it, of them. <laughs> don't think more of them than we are given permission to in God's word. We are to think ultimately of Jesus we are to look to him, that he is the one that is constant. He is the ultimate shepherd of his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the one that doesn't fail. He is the one that is, sits enthroned. He is the one who gives words of truth that are perfect and not flawed. He's the one that cares for us like a good father who knows what is right to give to us. He's the one who's always patient. He is the one who, who always has the right counsel. He's the one who is wise and self-controlled and tempered. He is the one who is righteous and true. And we ultimately look to him. You know, finally, to close this hodgepodge of commands, right? It feels like that. Live a lifestyle of praise to God. Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God in verse 15. Christians who rest in the grace of God still want to know what to do. What do I do? How do I live my life? Live a life of gratitude. Live a life of gratitude. Have a disposition of praise wherever you go, in any circumstance. This language, continually offer up, is meant that there's this disposition of praise, not just on our lips, but in our heart. It's not instances of praise. It's not, hey, be thankful at the dinner table tonight and just recollect the things that you're thankful for in your prayers. It, it includes that. It's much more than that. It's a lifestyle disposition, a demeanor of praise, a life of praise without love and action for others is just an empty religion. But a, and a life of love for others without acknowledgement to God 
and in praise of God for what he has done is just joyless secularism. So we love others, but we don't praise God, then we're Habitat for Humanity, which is a great organization. It's not the church. It doesn't offer praise to God. If we love, if, we, if we're so thankful, but we don't sh- share our gifts with others as a way of easing their suffering, then our faith is empty. I want you to look at this list kind of in closing here. And I'm going to close like our author closes, where he says, amen, and then he keeps talking. Okay. All right. Which is so weird. He says, I'm done. I think he, I don't know, came back. All right. Look at this list. Treat strangers like friends. Practice genuine empathy. Honor God's design for marriage and sexuality. Guard against greed. Respect human authorities. Live a lifestyle of praise. First of all, how are you doing? How are you doing? Maybe there's one, maybe there's two, maybe there's all of them where you're just like, man, I, I, got, I got some things I need to focus on. And be honest with yourself. Be honest with this. This is, this is here for our, for our benefit. It's here for us to know and enjoy God. It's here for us to, to be a blessing to one another. So be honest. And second, I want you to know and, and notice how all of these commands are supported and undergirded on, on a, a very important foundation. Two realities. God will never forsake you. And the character of Christ, which never changes, is God's pledge of his faithfulness to you, even when you're weak in all of these areas. And so as we look at God's commands, and this goes for this passage or any other passage that you read that offers a command and says, here's how you should live and here's a life pleasing to God. On what basis, by what motivation do you engage in these things? By what power are you even capable of living a life like that? Let's not forget the sacrifice of Christ. Let's not forget the truth of the rest of the book of Hebrews. It's not in what we bring, it's what he has done for us. But we then we don't have permission, though, to say, oh, so we don't do anything then. No, there are different sacrifices we give, just not for our acceptance with him. For Jesus is the Lamb of God. He bought that way. He bought our rescue, our salvation, our forgiveness through, the, through his own blood. And there's this weird section here in chapter 13 that we read that maybe some of you went cross-eyed about, talking about Jesus who was led out into the wilderness. He was led out of the camp. Sacrifice was made. And we are out in that camp enduring his own punishment, things like that. What's going on there? Jesus was ostracized. He was brought out of the camp, outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He was betrayed. He was alienated. He was rejected. And he was crucified for us. He died for our sins. His faithfulness abides constantly. Everything else in our world changes, but he doesn't. And everything, all of our motivation and our desire to grow from our current state of our sanctification to the next, to be more faithful in these ways, it is always in remembrance and reliance on what Jesus has done for us. 
He was ostracized so that we could be brought in. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. Like the lamb that was brought out of the fellowship of God's people and slaughtered, he was crucified for us. Our sins are laid upon him so that we can be welcomed into the family of God and called his sons and daughters. And that changes our motivation for why we pursue to get better. I don't want, we shouldn't look at that list and say, I'm failing in all these, I need to get better. Tomorrow's the day, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna turn over a new leaf, I'm gonna start a new chapter in my life. I can do it. It's not a gritting through our teeth and trying harder on our own strength and character. We change our habits not to be accepted, but because we've already been accepted. We grow not by clenching our teeth and making promises, but through knowing that we are secure in him no matter what happens. What a contrast Jesus is to everything else in this world. Everything changes. People change. What is virtuous today will bring scorn tomorrow. What people hate today will be loved tomorrow, but God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was sent out of the city, crucified like a, like a criminal, to die the death as a cursed man. And his unimaginable love for us, he would spare nothing that was necessary to reconcile us to him once and for all. And our response is a life of surrender, sacrifice, and praise. Not just because he is worthy, but because he is good.